Our next speaker is Bland Mason. Uh, he's pastor of City on a Hill Church uh, in Brookline, Boston, kind of both and. Is that how it works? Um, and uh, Bland and his wife Teresa moved here in 2008. They have three kids, Jordan, Hannah, and Sarah. And Sarah is my daughter Mariah's big sister at Veritas Christian Academy. So she has much affection for Sarah, uh, who dotes on her quite nicely. Uh, uh, Bland uh, is, uh, so they launched City on a Hill Church about four years ago. And in those four years, uh, just launched their second church plant out of City on a Hill Church. And so it's just a really exciting uh, movement uh, that, that God is at work in. Um, Bland has a Master's of Divinity and a Ph.D. from Southern Baptist Seminary. And uh, he taught uh, theology as an adjunct professor at Campbellsville University for a few years before coming up here. He's also a chapel leader for the Boston Red Sox, and so, which is a, a fun thing he does on the side. Uh, some of you may have, if you're part of Westgate, may have met Bland or his wife Teresa through the Faith Homeschool Co-op that they were part of uh, that meets here at Westgate. Again, he's got a daughter at Veritas Christian Academy. Some of you here have children uh, at that school. Uh, Bland has personally been a huge encouragement to me uh, as a young pastor. Uh, we've gotten together several times, and, and just as he's shared his vision for the gospel in Boston, his vision for missional communities, for uh, you know helping coach those along, just the pastoral wisdom he shared with me at times. And so I'm thrilled to have him be able to share with all of us this morning. So Bland, come, and uh, he's going to talk to us about gospel-shaped communities on mission together. Thanks, Brandon. Um, I want to say uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to come and to just um, speak. Uh, this is something that um, I get a I get a lot of joy from, uh, just to be able to uh, step outside of of the context of my local church and to serve another uh, local church. Uh, how many of you are from Westgate, by the way? Just curious. Wow, that's awesome. I think. Uh, you said last night, like probably half or not. Well, I think you probably got two thirds today, so that's 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 exciting. Um, but thanks for hosting this conference, Jared and our, our Brandon for uh, leading this. Thinking of Jared's message myself, uh, and I was deeply encouraged by uh, Jared's message. If you've never uh, listened to him, he uh, don't take his Twitter account as to uh, to how he preaches. I used to. I remember following him on Twitter for a while, and then uh, and then. Actually, listen to a few of his sermons. We're going through Mark right now, so I, I listened to a couple of your sermons recently, and it's like, wow, he uh, he preaches very differently than he tweets. Uh, <laughs> uh, not nearly as much sarcasm, um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I love the the spiritual gift of sarcasm myself. So. Um, I want to, uh, before we dive in, I want to answer a pressing question that might be on some of your minds if you've uh, never met me or heard of me or anything, and, and it's going to be an issue for you sitting here listening the whole time because it's going to, until you get it answered, you're going to just, it's going to stick in your brain, and that is, is this guy's name really bland? Um, and I want to tell you it is, yes, it's a real family name, my parents didn't hate me, um, 
It, it was my uh, great grandmother's maiden name, and so my uh, my parents, uh, my dad's William Bland Mason Sr. Uh, he went by William. I'm William Bland Mason Jr. Got uh, stuck with uh, with uh, William or with Bland. So um, it seems strange in some ways, honestly, for me to be standing here talking to you about mission because if you look back and you go back in my life, uh, it. Not only doing this, but just many of the things I'm doing right now just seem very strange if you uh, if you know my past at all. I'm going to mess with this today. I don't know how, you, Jared, you kept yours. It must fit your ear perfectly or something because it keeps wanting to move on me. But um, if I mess with it, just forgive me. But um, much of my life is hard to explain apart from the gospel that, that Jared uh, preached so eloquently today. Uh, like some of you, I grew up uh, in a Christian family. Went to church uh, regularly, uh, but just was never really discipled well. Uh, got into high school and was living this crazy life where I was this one person at church and this whole different person when I uh, went out into um, school and into the, the community. Getting ready to use the handheld. <laughs> All right, I think I got it. Um, but I found out my, my life was really in conflict with each other, and I didn't understand why. I just knew that I was not a whole person. And it wasn't until uh, really the end of my senior year I reached the pinnacle of, of what I could do in life, and that was I failed to graduate from high school on time. Uh, I had flunked several classes through high school, and then five days before graduation found out I was flunking senior English, and there was nothing I could do about it. Um, and so that was a, a really low time in my life. Spent a lot of my energy, um, besides going to summer school, uh, going to uh, focusing my, my energy on having as much fun and numbing my life as much as I could with, with alcohol, drugs, and, and, and girls, and uh, anything else I could find to, to, to keep myself uh, interested. But God in his glory and his grace uh, allowed me to get into a college, believe it or not. This college would accept anyone with a pulse at that point. Um, and uh, I think they'd accept you without a pulse if you'd prepaid your first semester. So uh, I got in. I got in by God's grace, really on my SAT scores. The, the dean of admissions held my SATs in one hand and my 1.56 GPA in the other hand. And dead up looked me in the eye and said, did you cheat on your SATs? Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I got in and God wrecked me in a beautiful, glorious way as he, as, as I began to see uh, through my roommate, who's still a very, very close friend today, uh, who did not grow up a Christian but became a Christian when he was 17. Um, and the way he loved Christ and was pursuing Christ and the wholeness that he had to his life. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he had a wholeness about him. And I and that really connected with me. I was like the thing that I've been missing. And, and so uh, God changed my life, went on to be a dean's list student, double majored and graduated in four years and went on, did an MDiv and a PhD and taught college. Uh, on the side, uh, but but what happened to me along the way, uh, as God slowly brought me on this journey, the first journey was seeing how the gospel really is supposed to affect all of life, that you're a Christian all the time, and that the gospel permeates every sector and area of your life, and then uh, it was a few years later that I began to see something that that transformed, that blew my, blew my categories up in, in life, and that is, uh, I began to study in scripture the concept of the nations and the concept of the nations uh, in scripture you don't we don't have time to, to do a, an exhaustive study by any means today but is is huge and if you 
I believe if you don't understand it, you won't understand your place in this world, what God's even doing. Jared did a great job of, of dropping like these little bomb hints of revealing this big picture of all that, that Christ is doing in the world. But there are some things that, uh, that, that can help you to see this so crystal clear. And one of them is following the theme of the nations. Uh, in scripture and for me in particular it helped me to see that jesus was not just simply about redeeming me individually though that that's important and good and and i celebrate that but he's doing something much bigger that involves me as part of a people and i had grown up in the individualistic self-centered self-absorbed culture that that made everything about me so even in terms of the gospel i was thinking jesus and me for those first few years in college versus uh, the idea of being a part of Jesus's family uh, is really where my identity is, not not in this me by myself. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is look at three movements in how uh, through scripture and believe me, we're doing this is what I call the 40,000 foot flyover. Uh, I typically do uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible and love to do that. But this idea in particular has been so formative for me and I've been able to share it in several different contexts and it's helped give a big picture to to uh, people to understand where they are and what they're doing and even what the role of what Westgate plays in this big picture. Um, and if we understand that, then we can begin to mobilize as a community on mission without, uh, a, a, as, as Jared mentioned, being just dis, so disenchanted with culture and discouraged by the city and being overwhelmed. Jesus is doing something and he will get it done. That's the one thing you can know today beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's not wandering around up in heaven wringing his hands going, I just don't know what to do with Boston. You know, It's the question of do the people of God, will they be a part of that? Um, will the local churches, the established churches like Westgate be a part of it and not just some of the newer churches uh, like City on a Hill and the others? So three simple movements we're going to see through Scripture. You can open your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, to see the first one, I'm going to pray and then we'll we'll dive in. <clears throat> Jesus, we're just uh, humbled and grateful for your incredible mercy to us today. Um, just even before our eyes were opened, you you were ruling and reigning, and uh, just the the mercy of waking up in a, a warm bed and and um, with family and friends and and food um, are, are just tiny blessings. Uh, that, that you give to us, but are real blessings nonetheless. And, um, but most of all today, just knowing that we are at peace with you, uh, with the Father, and that nothing can separate us from your love. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for what you have done and you are doing in this world um, to, to glorify your name. We pray, uh, Father, we might get a glimpse today of this, this great plan, this overarching, historical, global movement that you have initiated and you will bring to completion. Uh, may we see it. May we long to be a part of it as part of your people. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first the first kind of clue we see in Scripture uh, to the nations, and one of the first places the word shows up is in Genesis 12. And so what we're going to see in this first movement is God's mission. God's mission always has been and always will be to redeem a family for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that's our our first point. In Genesis 11, which comes right before Genesis 12, this is the story of the Tower of Babel, 
right? We know, you know that story. And, and at that point, mankind was all in one location. Okay, we were all man, men, women, and children were in one location. They were building a city. We were building a city for our glory. We were going to build it all the way up to heaven, and we were going to knock on heaven's door and 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 tell God how awesome we were. That's that's what it really really meant. And at that point, I don't know if it has occurred to you, but if God wanted to just redeem a people, if that was His only goal, He could have done it right then. He had them all together. Like one place, one time, send Jesus, die, redeem humanity. But that was not his goal. His goal, his mission is to redeem a people from all tribes, tongues, and nations on earth. So what he does, rather than bringing the people together, because he'd actually told them in, told Adam and Eve that they were to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So we were defying that at that moment, living in sin, and God says, I, my plan to, to redeem a family from among the nations has to happen, and you're, you're living in sin right now, so I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to scatter you because one day I'm going to bring you back together as, as a humanity. And so um, what we see at the beginning of Genesis 12 is that rather than starting with all the people and, and redeeming them, he scatters them and then chooses one. One man named Abram. And if you uh, look at Genesis, or Genesis 12, verse 3 here, he says to Abram, and, and th- believe me, this is like the cliff notes. You could just unpack all this all day long. But I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, he repeats this several times, which is usually a clue that it's important. But flip over to 22 now. Genesis 22, verse 18. It's another occurrence. He's he's repeating this. And he does it in just a slightly different way. While you're turning there, though, you need to understand what he's saying. This is not a national blessing. He doesn't say, I will bless Israel and Israel will be the blessed of the earth. He goes, no, I will bless bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations to the peoples and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Genesis 22 and verse 18, he says, very important here, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not in your offspring, the Jews will be blessed or the the the, the Anglo people, white people will be blessed or Asians will be blessed or um, you know, Africans will be blessed or, you know, Latinos will be blessed, but all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. Now, if, if that's all we had, we would see the word offspring, um, could symbolize, uh, uh offspring plural. Okay. So the, the Hebrew, it's not uncommon to use a singular word offspring to refer to all of offspring. This is a singular word, but we don't have to guess about what God meant here because Paul tells us, and and don't flip here, but Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us he refers to this exact text in Genesis 22 and says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So we, we're in Genesis 22. That's kind of early in history. And God has already said, I'm going to bless all of humanity through Jesus, all nations. And I, and I think that's so important. It's not just, 
I'm going to bless a bunch of people. I'm going to bless the nations. We'll talk about a little bit more about what that word really means in just a moment. Um, but, but what would that blessing look like? It would look like Jesus coming. And, and I get this question sometimes. Well, why did Jesus, why did Jesus come to Israel? Why didn't Jesus come earlier? Why couldn't Jesus have come right after the Tower of Babel, right after people were scattered? You, you need to understand that God was building something and he was building the context for it. If Jesus had shown up in ancient China, there would have been no context for understanding, number one, God, Messiah, you know, a king, a restoration, any of that. God was not just not just planning to send Jesus. It wasn't like he was just delaying for no reason. He was building the right context, the Jewish people, for, for the Messiah to come to all of humanity. So that's why there's this big delay. But Christ comes, and when he comes, he, he dies on the cross um, as an atonement for all of mankind. Now, the problem here is this is where you and I get off. We, we, we get off track because we say, well, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. And that's true. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. That's, that's very true. And if you don't understand that personally, then, then you're probably not a Christian. So you should understand that in a personal sense. But we ultimately make it then about us. Jesus died for me. He came for me. He's coming again for me. Jesus and me. And that, and that's what, I, this is how I used to think when I was a youth pastor years ago. I remember I did a youth retreat back then. You had to come up with some tricky, you know, some creative name or idea. They still do it today, but it was much worse back then. Uh, and I had, it was a jam weekend. Jesus and me. The problem with that is that feeds into our Western individualistic culture. You do not see that in Scripture. Not that Jesus didn't die for you, but that's not the, 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 the weight of Scripture. The weight of Scripture is on Jesus dying for His people, to bring His people into a family, a body, a new community. That's why Jesus is called the new Adam. He's starting a new humanity, a new family, if you will. From among the people on this earth. That's the corporate body. That's the church. We say in our church that Jesus creates family where there is no family. Where people are not biologically related to each other. Jesus binds them together in his family through the cross and the resurrection. I've, I've been incredibly blessed. I, I pastored in um, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky for... Uh, nine years before moving here to to start uh, City on a Hill Church, but it's been such a blessing for me. And uh, I was I was in a community that was almost like 94 percent white. Uh, there were some Latinos, African Americans, but it was very very white community. So our church was predominantly white, but we did have um, a few people from other races. But being at City on a Hill in particular, because the cities cities seem to pull people together from so many different walks of life and stages and experiences and backgrounds and educations and uh, ages and all of that. That that at, at City on a Hill, we have been able to see some some people that wouldn't be together in this culture. We have, we have a we have some uh, folks that live in a, a an adult assisted living facility because they're not capable of living on their own. They're in a community group sharing life with a guy getting his MD PhD at Harvard Medical School, uh, or or a guy who's a, a hedge fund manager downtown, or a school teacher and a coffee barista, 
Uh, our community groups are, 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 one of our coolest community groups that I love is a senior adult couple. He's 75, she's 69, and they host it. And then a couple in their mid-late 20s, they're, they're locals from, from Brookline, uh, area, uh, and, and, and a young couple from, he's from Reno, she's from California, lead the group. And then there's uh, a Chinese American couple in it, and then uh, several single people, Indian uh, girl who's from India, uh, in this group together. And here's the thing: our culture gets together over affinity. Okay, the largest church in the city of Boston is a large green structure in the Fenway area that that people worship at, and they they come together and they offer their praises, they give their offerings at the door. And, and, and they worship, but they had, but their, their unity is only tied to sports. They're not sharing life together. If, if somebody is crying next to you during a game, you, you're not going to go, Oh, how are you doing, man? You know, we, they're, they're, that's how our city unifies. They unify and they come together and there's community around work. There's community around school. There's community around we live in the same neighborhood. There's all these communities, but we don't cross the bridges and, and, and Jesus' family brings people together who have no reason together, no, no earthly reason to be together. That's the, the picture of this family that he's creating and establishing. Um, and that's, that's what God's mission has been all along. Now, when we move, again, I told you I was going through the Bible, but you can flip a long ways now to Matthew chapter 28, where we see our second movement. So God's mission has been to build a family. The second, uh, second point I want to see and we want to see in terms of the nations and this idea of family is that our mission is as being part of God's family, we join God in his mission by making disciples of the nations. So, very famous passage in Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. You've heard it many times, I'm sure. Um, but Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what's really important here and what we're going to focus on is the word nations. The word all, all nations there. And this is where you're going to really get a picture of what, what God's plan has been all along. The word nations is, uh, the word we get our English word ethnic from. That's the Greek word ethne. Uh, we get our English word, uh, ethnic or ethnicity from. So when, when you hear the word nations in scripture, don't think a global map of, of the geopolitical organizations that we see because that's not what that's not what they are. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ethnic groups or groups of people who have a, a unique culture and language that differentiates them from cultures around them. There are many people groups in Boston, many of them who do not integrate well or connect well with other cultures. A lot of first-generation immigrants from other parts of the world. Um, our, our next church plant that we do will probably be an Indian church planter the plant among the 70,000 Indian people that live in the city. And the reason why we're going to target that is those Indian people speak English, but their culture is so unique that they are less likely, likely to just integrate and make the jump into uh, uh, an English-speaking or Anglo church uh, or even a multi-ethnic church because the way they think, the way they do life, and the way they process things is very unique. That's a people group, and that's what Christ's picture is of multiple people groups being brought in 
to the family. This is the very same language. If you remember, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, go to all the nations and make disciples. Um, and what's beautiful about this is the very, the very community that Christ creates through the gospel then carries the message of the gospel to bring more people into the same community. It's not like the, the church has to come up with their own strategy. I mean, it always has. So there's ways you can, you can do things practically, but it always has been and always will be about proclaiming the gospel. Hey, you know what? I once wasn't part of God's family, but I am now. You could too. That's the, the, the message of the gospel through Christ being proclaimed brings people together. One of the, the threads of Scripture is this idea of the nations. That's why in the, the, the book of Acts, which is the, the early history book of the church right after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, you see what, it, what, what happens to the gospel. Very quickly expands out of Jerusalem. Almost all the early followers of Jesus were Jews, but the second generation of followers were almost all not Jews. It began to spread around the Roman Empire. And here's the beauty of it. God used things even like the persecution of Stephen, uh, the, the murder of Stephen, to do it. So the Christians were scared, and so they left Jerusalem. And when they left, they took the gospel with them and spread throughout the Roman Empire at that time, starting new churches in these communities around the area. Listen, you and I here are redeemed to be a part of this mission. This is, this is as much a part of who we are as our salvation ourselves, is the mission that we are saved to. We are, we are not saved. Jesus didn't die on the cross and give us a membership card so we can meet up with him at the end. He saved us that we might be a new family, a new people representing him to others that could be saved and meet him and, and be a part of that family. Now, what about challenges? <laughs> yeah, there always have been challenges. I know we look at the culture in our city and we, we say, well, it's, you know, it's very antagonistic, but, but God has always been faithful to take the gospel to the nations. Okay. He has never not done it. In 2000 years, the gospel has not, has never ceased to keep going forth. Early, if, if you think that our culture is, is antagonistic, you just need to go back and study the early church. Because during the first century, couple centuries of Christianity, Christians were killed in the Roman Empire like rats. There were points where thousands of Christians were died. We believe that the Emperor Nero was under his persecution and he was in he was, you may disagree with how, uh, political leaders and, and people do things in our country, but this man was clinically insane. I mean, he used to, uh, first he burned the center of the Rome, burned the blocks that he just happened to want a, to build a new palace on. Then he blamed it on the Christians because people thought, well, that's weird. All those blocks that Nero was wanting to condemn so he could build his palace suddenly burned. I bet our emperor did it. He goes, no, it's those evil Christians. So then he decides to start killing them. He would um, put them on stakes, dip them in oil, hang them and light them in his garden at night. We're, we're, we're not there as America, right? Okay, thankful, yes. 
You think, oh, well, that certainly killed Christianity. No, just the opposite. The gospel grew and it continued to grow. And the Roman Empire persecuted it and persecuted it and persecuted it. And it's continued to grow. Actually, if you look at history, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, that was the beginning of the downfall of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Because it became institutionalized. I've often said if China wants, to, if the Chinese communist government wants to stop Christianity in China, the best thing they could do is declare it the official religion of China. Now, for the first generation, it'll, it'll grow, but give it another generation, it becomes nominal and starts to decline. That's what the early church did. And just to give you a little perspective, 120 believers at Pentecost, uh, were praying together before Pentecost. The Roman Empire was 65 million people living on three different continents. 65 million people. Yet in three centuries, the Roman Empire became became Christian. Where a huge percentage, as much as 90% of the people living in cities were Christians. Okay, How did that happen? Not because of persecution, because persecution happened. And it wasn't because it was easy, because it wasn't. Christians lived out their faith in communities and those communities added people as they proclaimed the gospel and lived it out. God is sovereign. There's not a person in the city of Boston that is too far from God that he he could not save them today. We forget that. We start to look at the news and we look at our culture and we meet hard people who are angry at God and angry at the gospel. You just need to remember the Apostle Paul. Okay, the Apostle Paul was killing Christians. That that's pretty clear sign you're not even close to the team. Okay? You're not like a seeker. You're not open. You're not exploring. He wasn't reading Reason for God or mere Christianity. He was like, these people have to die. And then in a day, in a moment, he's now one of them. And becomes the greatest apostle. God is sovereign. Yes, Boston's a challenging environment. But Jesus is not sitting up in heaven, as I said, wringing his hands or wondering what to do with a guy with a PhD in physics. Wow, a PhD in physics. I invented physics. God is not, Jesus is not overwhelmed in how to carry out the mission. It's the question of will his people carry out the mission. He is more often more ready to empower us to do it than we are willing to do it as his people. And that brings us to the third third, um, movement here. And then we'll get to some practical applications. But uh, this, this is so important to remember as well because, again, even growing up in church and hearing the gospel and even through college, I heard the mission, mission, mission. And, and the idea was, was, well, okay, well, this thing's going to track down to one day we're all going to die and go to heaven. But, but what you see in scripture is this idea from nations in Genesis 12 and then Matthew 28 actually gives us a picture of what happens in the end as well. The word nations shows up at the end in, in, in Revelation chapter 7. And that's a, that's our, our last big text for today. But one day, God's mission will be swallowed up in an epic, joy-filled, multi-ethnic family worship gathering. One day, the mission's gonna, gonna be completed, and what is it gonna look like? It's going to look like a giant family 
from all over the world and tribes and tongues and nations and languages. And, and I'm sorry if you don't like to sing. You're one of those people that don't like to sing. We're going to be singing. There's going to be singing there. Um, I think you're going to sing. I, I do. And you're like, I don't sing. I think you'll sing there. I do. Um, and, 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 and it's a beautiful picture in Revelation 7. Listen to the language from Genesis 12, Matthew 28. After this I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. And he wants to be specific here. And tri- all tribes and peoples and languages. Just in case you didn't understand what nations are. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the scene one day. And it started with Abraham. One day all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They've, they've been blessed through Christ, but the full blessing and the full picture of that blessing is here. What we see in Revelation 7. And I'm going to tell you something today that uh, honestly, I, I, it didn't occur to me until probably five years ago. Um, and it might be the one thing you walk away from with today just to go, well, I never thought about that. And that's really cool. And you're going to go home and tell your friends about it um, and, and blog about it, put it on Facebook tonight. But I don't know if it's occurred to you, but if you are a Christian, John saw you. John saw you. This wasn't a mass of no faces. These are the people of God from all nations and tribes and tongues on earth. That includes you. And you can go home and tell your friend, hey, I'm in the Bible. Do you know that? I'm there. And you are. And that's beautiful because you've been purchased by Christ. But here's the question. Will you be a part of anyone else being there? Will you be a part of bringing the nations to worship at the throne of Jesus because he's worthy? So here we stand. We're between the Great Commission. It's very clear back in Genesis 12. It was like, what does the blessing really mean? What is There's little glimpses. Study the nations. Go home and look up Bible Gateway and type in nations and look at all the Old Testament references. They're there. You, you could get a picture of Jesus from all of that, but it was just little clues. Then Jesus comes and he sends his disciples going, this, I am the blessing for all the nations. Now go bless the nations by me and with me. And then at the end we see this. So we're, we're after the great commission. We're before the great party, worship gathering, family gathering that we see at the end. That's what we get to be a part of. That's what our lives get caught up in. That's what every church, every gospel-believing church is part of. And the question is, do you embrace that? Are you celebrating that going, okay, we got, we got the nations. We get to go to the nations starting locally, starting with our neighborhood. We get to, to take the gospel out. And the beauty is, the results are His. You didn't become a Christian because you were smart. I didn't become a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. Now, did that help? It sure does. I, 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 I know, uh, Matt Chandler, Jared's close to him. Uh, Chandler talks about putting kindling around your kids so that the Holy Spirit can light it in time. Uh, and, and so it is good to grow up in a Christian family where, where you have a lot of kindling and the Holy Spirit's very easy to light that. But the Holy Spirit still has to light that. You didn't become a Christian because you were smart 
or you just figured it out. You became a Christian because Jesus Christ regenerated your heart and brought you into the family. So now, are you willing to go to others, proclaim the message that you've come to believe? Here and now, we get to taste a bit of what that party is. That's why, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but every Sunday, a worship gathering with God's people is a dress rehearsal for the big one. I, I love the fact, and I remind our folks sometimes on Sundays, that way before we opened our eyes this morning, there were churches gathering in the, you know, far, far away from us, far east, uh, gathering, getting up, singing and preaching and, and baptizing and sharing communion together and, and people uh, that, that we won't ever meet on this side of heaven, but one day we'll worship with and, with. and then I said, and every hour since then, it's been going on. And we just get to come up for our little hour, contribute in, in, in worship, joint worship, and, and then it keeps going. It's a reminder you're a part of something that's huge. And let me, let me give you something else to just reassure you that God is, Jesus is getting it done. On the screen is a map of global Christianity. This is just at least nominal Christians where people identify as Christians, which is generally a good clue that there are genuine Christians in that mix. But this is global Christianity. In 2,000 years, it started 2,000 years ago in a tiny little dot, roughly the center, about two-thirds of the way up. And look at what has happened. And here's one of the... People ask me all the time, well, why do you think Christianity is the only true faith? Why do you think God is... Here's, here's one of the clues. Very anecdotal, but it's evidence nonetheless. The gospel speaks to every culture on earth. No other religion is like that. Islam is predominantly a, uh, a far, uh, an Eastern uh, religion. Um, a, uh, Hinduism is Far Eastern. Buddhism, Far Eastern. A lot of animistic religions are you know, in Africa and, and Latin America. Um, but as far as the, speaking to whatever background, tribe, worldview, experience, culture that a people have, the gospel connects with every one. It's already done it. Now it's just a matter of the gospel reaching those last thousands, few thousands of, of uh, people groups that are left. These isolated people groups where there's no faithful witness. I saw a microcosm of this picture um, back in 2000. I will never forget it as long as I live because it will probably never happen again for me. But in 2000, I had the great joy of going to Amsterdam for a conference that Billy Graham put on. It's the Billy Graham World Conference on Evangelism. And when I was there, there were uh, about 10,000 people from 200 different nations gathered. And when we sang, everybody had their music and their words in their own language. I remember singing, now we don't do this song that much anymore. It's it's still a pretty good song, but uh, don't do it much. Uh, Shout to the Lord. And I, I got halfway through and I was just like done. I, I, I couldn't control myself. I'm listening to languages within earshot of me all around. I'm like, this is like heaven's going to be. And I remember the unity I felt. I didn't even know these people's languages. They, they, they were, I felt handicapped. <laughs> they all knew English much better than I did. And they would, and I remember praying with a guy from Ecuador and he's like, do you mind if I pray in Spanish? Cause I don't know English real well. And I'm like, well, I don't know any Spanish. So you go for it cause Jesus hears us. 
Um, and so I remember praying with him. Um, and what a beautiful scene that was for me. And that's, that's one of the things that keeps me going. And you need to remember that Westgate is part of that. Part of that story. As a people, you get to be a part of that. You get to leverage your time to, to be a part of that. Now, just some, some practical applications. We're going to uh, do a little more of this in a moment, so I'm not going to spend very long on this. Uh, but some practical applications. And I'm one of those that, like, that's a really amazing picture, and that should inspire, but I always ask the question, okay, so what? Like, that's great, but what does that mean for me personally? So here are some very basic applications. Number one, some of you just need to get serious about Jesus and stop playing with your sin. You just... You're so compromised up, you can't even think of mission. Your, 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 your lust, your pride, your selfish ambition, whatever it may be, is so compromised to you spiritually. The good news is Jesus has taken care of that. You're carrying that burden because of you, not because of Jesus. And he's given you the power to defeat that, to walk in, in grace. Not that you'll never fall and never, never struggle, but he will forgive you and will walk with you. I find people who are compromised up have a huge problem thinking about mission. Because the idea is like, I I can't reproduce me. Well, listen, here's the truth. You're not reproducing you anyway. You're telling people about, hey, you know, I'm a sinner and I'm messed up. And Jesus saved me. And you look pretty messed up too. He could probably save you. You know, (laughs) I mean... But that's what you're saying, in essence, is like, uh, not, hey, you know what? I got my whole life together really nice and neat, and look at me. You could be like me. No, that's not the gospel. But if you are in habitual, unrepentant sin, yes, you're going to have a problem talking to someone else. And I think that, honestly, Christians are a huge obstacle to people meeting Jesus. And I, and I, I have, and that's not just anecdotal about Eight or nine years ago, I helped um, my, the dean when I was finishing my PhD. Uh, I did helped with a research project for a book he wrote called *The Unchurched Next Door*. And the book uh, was a culmination of I think 400 surveys that were about an hour long, done on people that were unchurched, and it helped kind of categorize, like thinking through what different types of people are who are unchurched. And I was in charge of getting 35 interviews. Uh, doing those, I did almost all of them in New England. Uh, God was giving, God was already preparing me. I didn't even know I was coming here, but he, but he was preparing me. Uh, I had family in the area, and so they helped me network. Uh, a lot of them had coworkers. They were like, "I've got you know a bunch of coworkers who don't know Jesus." So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll talk to him about it, helping you. You know what I found was sad. Not just in New England, but they found throughout the United States, the two biggest obstacles to most people meeting Jesus are Christians and the church. Because what happens is they meet Christians who not just fail, like they don't, they're not looking for perfection. That's, that's a mistake. The culture doesn't look and go, oh, I think Christians should walk on water like Jesus. They, they, they look for real people who have a humility about them and who have faith in Jesus. And, and the, the problem is there were people habitually mean-spirited, habitually self-absorbed, habitually immoral, who Go under the name of Christ. And so when a non-Christian looks at them and they go, well, let me see, that boils down to the fact that there's really no difference. And they go to church on Sunday. Mm, I'd rather have my couple hours on Sunday. Thank you. 
And so Christians can get can be the biggest obstacle if they're not walking in genuine repentance with Christ. And churches as well. Churches arguing over the color of the carpet. Churches splitting and mean-spirited and firing their pastor um, and things like that. All right, so get serious about Jesus. Stop playing with sin. It's it's uh, Jesus died for your sin. Secondly, repent of hijacking the mission. The thing I find with many of us is we just sort of hijack Jesus' mission to go to the nations. God has given us uh, time in this world, energy, resources, most importantly, new life in Him, not so we can just use it for ourselves, not so we can just go, okay, well, I'll work Christianity into my life over here, and then I get this much time. I go to church on Sunday, and then I get this much time. And as long as I'm not sinning badly, that's okay. No, no, no. See, your money, that's why Jesus calls it a kingdom. He's a king over a kingdom. And a king has authority over all his subjects. And really, in the kingdom, the subjects live for the honor of the king. You know, if I gave my kids $20 ice cream, uh, $20, and sent them to the grocery store to buy, you know, milk, bread, and cereal, and they came back with uh, gummy bears, candy, and, and ice cream, and they're like, well, I, I thought I could get what I want. I wouldn't be like, well, you know what? It's, I gave it to you, so sure, just whatever you want to do. No, that was my money, my mission. They hijacked it. And we need to be careful about taking God's mission and thinking it's about carving out some comfort in this world. No, the Christian has to fight that. John Piper said a long time ago, and I, and I strongly disagreed initially with him, and then, as always with him, God kind of showed me the wisdom of what he said uh, over time. He said it's harder to be a Christian in the United States than anywhere else in the world. I was like, well, what about in Indonesia or, or Pakistan or somewhere like that where people are dying? No, see, we have the allure of, of being, living a comfortable life because we have so much resources, we have so many resources, so much time, so much, uh, ability to just fill our lives with things that aren't that important. We try to create a little heaven here on earth. That's what our culture is doing. Instead of realizing the Christian, we're not trying to carve out heaven here on earth. We've got one and it's a lot better than this one. Okay? So repent of hijacking the mission. Um, nearly everything in our Western culture teaches us the opposite of this. I grew up, I was the first of the self-esteem generation. You know, most important thing about you is that you, you're, you're incredible, you're amazing, you're awesome, and the world should get in on your story. And the problem with that is we weren't, we're not awesome. I don't, maybe you are, but I'm not. And you look at my life and my background, I look at my struggles. I'm not awesome. The world doesn't need to get in on this. I need to get in on something bigger than this. That's the story of what Christ is doing in this world. That, that as, 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 uh, Jared said, that young man was like, this is big. You want to motivate, honestly, you want to motivate some of your teenagers in here. I see a few at least. You want to motivate teenagers. You tell them that God has called them to a glorious, global, historical, epic mission. And, and, and that's what they want to be a part of. But it can't just be them. We gotta set an example to them of, of living for that mission. It's kinda of like the, it's like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Not the regular one, like the extended cut. It's like 147 hours long or something. Um, 
and and we tend to think like, oh, well, I'll be Aragorn or Frodo or, you know, I get a part in the whole play. No, you don't get a part. You're like random guy number four and, you know, miscellaneous girl number 13. You get two seconds. Your back is on the screen. But but could you imagine going, you pay, played like a tiny role in Lord of the Rings. You go, you sit there, you watch all three of the movies with a friend of yours. You're like, that was a great movie about me, wasn't it? That's what we're doing when we hijack the mission. It's not about us. And the truth is, we don't want it to be about us. That's not inspiring. When we're most self-absorbed, are we most happy? Does anybody have a really good friend? I mean, they are the best friend in the whole world to you. And you're like, they are the best friend. They are so loving, kind, but happen to be the most self-absorbed person I've ever met in my life. No, it doesn't go together. Your personal happiness and wanting to be around people, nobody wants to be around that self-absorbed person. But we kind of mask it by going, oh, well, I give some money to church and I'm a nice person sometimes and I, you know, I go to church and uh, I'm in a Bible study and I read some Christian books. And we kind of mask our self-absorption underneath that, under a veneer of, oh, I'm about God. The truth is our hearts are for us. We need grace in that. We need to repent of hijacking the mission. Thirdly, we need to approach mission as the family of God and not as a solo missionary. This is so important. Again, thinking along the individualistic culture, um, it's no surprise that American Christians tend to view mission very individualistically. Like, it's it's you. And, and while, yes, you have a role in it, yes, you have a responsibility in it, yes, you are an ambassador, it's not merely about you. It's about the people of God being on the mission with the gospel of God. It, and, and that's actually really reassuring. And what do I mean by that is, um, somebody could deny you. We've got, we've got a guy who's a Boston College, um, PhD student economics who, um, who's been coming for a while. He's an atheist, uh, and, and he comes, he comes to community group and he comes to worship gathering some. He's been coming for probably a year. Because I still don't believe. But I can't get over how you people love each other and how you love me. He said, I, I, don't, I still can't explain why all you people are together, sharing life together, caring for each other. You just, some of you just met each other, and you seem to have a deep love for each other. And, you know, of course, I'm thinking God's pursuing this guy, and in time he's just going to be, all right, we're done with the arguing, let's, let's do this, you know, uh, which, which would be great when that happens. So I'll be looking forward to that. But right now it's so fun that the, the community of God has confounded him. When people see you, in a community, loving each other in a way that doesn't make sense to them. Not going to church. Listen, they have hobbies too. If church is a hobby, they'll recognize that. But if church is the people of God, then that's different than what they have. Number four, take steps this week to be on mission. We'll unpack a little more of these uh, simply, but some of you are... I think one of the tendencies we have in our culture is to think, well, one day... Once I get this, this, and this done, I'll, I'll, I'll really be freed up to be able to be on mission. And that's, no, you're, because that's a denial that Jesus has you where you are today. No, he wants you to be on mission because the truth is once you're, if you're living like that, then when you get there, you'll be like, well, I didn't know I was going to be busy with this. So after I finish that, or I get this degree, or I retire, or the kids get out of the house, or uh, the kids get in the house, or whatever, well, well, I'll have time for mission then. No, you need to make practical steps this week. Honestly, the most basic one that I know of, the most basic 
foundation for mission that I know of is to be praying for non-Christians by name, specifically on a regular basis. Because I think if you pray for a non-Christian regularly on an ongoing basis, you will, that will naturally push you over into taking steps of being on mission. But if you're not at least praying for someone, it's easy to go, oh, well, I can't invite them over for dinner. Oh, I can't go talk to them about Jesus. Oh, I can't talk to this guy sitting next to me on the plane about Jesus. Start by praying. Um, number five. And then pray and dream about how G- King Jesus might want to use you on mission. I think this is the fun part. See, we're God has created us as little um, little finite creators. He's given us uh, beauty and uh, the, 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 the ability to create music and culture and to write. Like, um, I just, Jared's got this thing going on where he writes that's it's just deep and, and, and great. And I appreciate that. And he's a blessing to others through it. What you need to find out is, is what is your, what is your gifting? And maybe you're not a writer. Maybe you're not a poet. I, you don't want me to paint anything. Um, stick figures is about it. Uh, but what can I do? What can you do? On mission for Christ. Maybe you're just an outgoing person. You know what? I can connect with just about anybody. Well, God wants to use that. Well, I'm kind of quiet, but I like to cook. Jesus can use that. You don't have to have a seminary degree. God help us if the kingdom of God is dependent on pastors to move the kingdom forward. Pastors are... Well... Um, <laughs> there's two others here, so I'm not going to talk about it. But... Uh, but but the kingdom of God is dependent upon the people of God carrying out the mission of God in their unique way. He's gifted you, wired you up. You know, we ha- we've had some gifts, people with the gifts of evangelism in the church. I don't, I'm not that person that's gifted to just, I mean, we had, we had a guy who would literally meet strangers on the tee and they would show up at church the next week. Like one after another, after another, after another, after another. And I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, oh, well, I'll just start talking to him. And we, you know, and it's like, dude, you know, use that. But not all of us are that way. We shouldn't be intimidated by that gift. Pray. And then dream. Does Jesus want you to go on a mission trip? Does Jesus want you to, to host a community party? My wife and I started praying a few years ago before we moved to Boston about what our next move would be. You see, I wanted to move one more time in ministry. I did have an opportunity to become a professor. But I, I, and I love the, the school and it would have been a great opportunity, but I was not, I just didn't feel wired up. Love the local church too much. Um, but my wife and I prayed about, okay, what are we going to do? We're moving one more time. We're going to plant our flag and see what Jesus can do in 25 years or more. Um, and, and, and we're just, whatever the context is. And we prayed about it and prayed about it. And I, I mean, moving out of, I, I've lived in Virginia, North Carolina and Louisville, Kentucky, moving to New England, with a wife who is definitely from the South. Um, she's, she still has the, she grew up in Hickory, North Carolina, and still has that nice Southern accent, uh, which I found up here is actually pretty uh, acceptable on women. Uh, but a guy, if you're like, well, how are you doing? You know, they're like, whoa, IQ just went, you know. A woman speaks up, and, she, and, and it's like, how are y'all? And it's like, oh, isn't that sweet? Why don't you talk some more? You know, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, that's what I found. I, I, I did have an accent, a bit of one when I moved up here. I tried to kill it still, still working on it. Um, but my wife and I prayed and this is our, we called it our big adventure. Moved to Boston, 
leveraged the rest of our lives. There was no church for us here moving here. I was giving up a steady paycheck to become a fundraising church planter during the recession, 2008, nine. And yet I would not trade it for anything. Because we stepped out on faith, and I am convinced we're, we're doing exactly what God wants us to do. You've got that. Ten days after I land in Boston, by the way, uh, I get a phone call from Baseball Chapel about the position with the Red Sox. Ten days. I'm looking at boxes in my living room while I'm talking to the guy on the phone, and I'm explaining to him I'm not a baseball fan. I just moved to Boston, and I couldn't name three guys on the team to save my life. I should not be the chapel leader to the Red Sox. Now, I do know all of them now, okay? So I know all of them, and I do, I'm do. i a big fan, know the stats and all that. But um, but can't, don't tell me that's not God's crazy, glorious providence. But would I have known if I would sat in Kentucky and waited around? Mm-mm. Wouldn't have known that. So you need to take some steps. Fin- uh, finally, write your own eulogy. Uh, I did around 100 funerals while I pastored in Kentucky. It was an older... Uh, kind of county seat, uh, Baptist church, um, a lot of good folks, and we saw some some great things happen, saw people meet Jesus, and um, yeah, just a lot of good things, but uh, but I also did a 100 funerals. It was a great honor to speak at the end of someone's life, um, and I just remember when when someone passed away, it was very obvious for me how what I could I could hold up. I always obviously preach the gospel, but I want to honor, the scripture says honor those you know, worthy of honor, and and so I wanted to honor the faithfulness, and the the example of pointing to Christ that people had, and it was amazing how people wrote their own eulogies, by the way they lived their lives, and it wasn't necessarily the big extroverted person who was friends with everybody. Sometimes it was that quiet, faithful prayer that 101 year old lady who passed away, never got married, used to go visit her. She said, "Why are you visiting me?" People don't know Jesus. You need to go see them. No, she was she was glad to see me, but she always said, "Go talk to people who don't know Jesus." And by the way, here's my little tithe check. And she she just give it to me. So can you put it in the offering plate on Sunday? And I would. And she I'd say, "Oh, can you can you pray for these five people?" Oh yeah, I'll pray for these five people. And I knew she did. And when she went on to meet Jesus, it was it was an honor to stand up there and and speak about that. Um, and and the way you live your life from now until however long He gives you will determine what what people honor god for um uh from your life for me this became very personal as i uh after i moved to boston because one year after i moved to boston right after we started the church um i I went to bed on a tuesday night and had what's called a cardiac arrest where my my heart stopped for for about eight minutes um it's not a heart attack it's just an electrical thing and uh, my wife fortunately woke up, gave me CPR. Um, they hit me with a defibrillator, brought it back. I spent nine days at Tufts New England Medical Center, two days in a medical coma uh, at the beginning. And um, long story short, came out of it. There's no side effects of it, but there's three things that really, really amazed me from it, One, or that I really carry away from it. One is I have a defibrillator in my chest right now, uh, right here. And it's also a pacemaker. So some of you have pacemakers, so we can trade notes later. But um, I have it in my chest in case it ever happens again. And then I have, secondly, a new appreciation for my friends and family um, and and for the mission that God's called me to. I had a peace that my life was not perfect in any way, not saying that, but that I was leveraging what I had for the right things. I was putting my chips into the middle on the on something that really mattered, starting a church in the city of Boston. And then finally, I just had an amazing peace 
When I woke up two and a half days later, they're explaining to me that I had a cardiac arrest. I had an amazing peace that that I was in God's hands. And that was the doctor looked at me and said, listen, 36-year-old guys don't have sudden cardiac arrest, that there's not something wrong. Like It's just there's something wrong. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do a heart catheterization, MRI, all of that. And, uh, and at that moment, that very moment, I remember looking at him and listening to him, and I had a peace in my heart that everything was going to be okay. Now, listen, not everything was going to be okay like your heart was good. But everything was going to be okay that I was in God's hands. And and I thank God for that experience. That seems weird, right? My wife would stand up here. It was the most horrible two and a half days of her entire life. But she would tell you that God has taught her so much through that. Um, but I want to challenge you to think about it because you don't have, nobody gets a guarantee of 80 years dying in your sleep. Um, tomorrow could be your last day. So how will you leverage what you you have to be a part of that kingdom mission. Matthew twenty four fourteen says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. He's coming again for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we're so thankful that you, you gave your life on our behalf, when we look at our own hearts and know the weakness, the brokenness, the selfishness, and we see how great your example is to us, it is just overwhelming that you would love us that much. Um, Thank you. Thank you that um, you do that, but that you also have not just redeemed us one day to see you in heaven, but that here and now we have a very real, practical all-encompassing mission that our our time, our money, our resources, our relationships all become a part of and give meaning to. So I pray that we would learn to leverage what you have given us um, for the sake of the nations, starting with our own backyard. In your name.